The reading this week is from Isaiah 39, 1 through 7. At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to the king Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, And what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord, hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you and whom you will father shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the, play, in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Natalie. Um, Hezekiah's foolishness in chapter 39 is just a microcosm of the centuries of foolishness that God's people have been going through, which sets us up for what we're going to talk about today. We have a new series that we're going to be in for the next nine weeks. It's out of the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. It's uh, chapters 40 through 55, 16 chapters of Isaiah, and uh, we're going to be um, introducing and, and, and in chapter 40... Uh, today, so if you want to turn there, we'll eventually get there. Uh, the question would, we would ask as we get started, of course, is why Isaiah 40 through 55? Well, these 16 chapters are actually one literary unit. They're one long poem that consists of many smaller poems, but ultimately they all point to the coming Savior, the, the coming suffering servant, they all point to Jesus. Even though Jesus' name is never used in these chapters, they are really mostly about um, Jesus. And so there are many great lessons that we'll be able to take out of these nine weeks. Application for us, even though Isaiah was written 2,700, 2,800 years ago. Um, and I'll just give you several previews, but here's a quick preview of six words or six terms that you should remember for Isaiah 40 through 55. The first one would be suffering servant. And I know that's two words, but it's one term. Suffering servant. And then comfort, hope, restoration, judgment, and Jesus. And again, you'll never see the word Jesus, but it is all about Jesus. So what we'll do today is I'll provide some context and some introduction into the series, and then we'll take a look at chapter 40. So the context of these 16 chapters is that Isaiah is looking into the not-so-distant future where the Jews are going to be take, carried away to exile in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. So as Isaiah writes this, the exile has not quite happened, but it's, it's, it's coming. It's coming very quickly. And Isaiah has prophesied about this exile because God's people have turned away from God, and so God is going to discipline them. And we see that final prediction about their, uh, their discipline in those seven verses that Natalie just read. So right out of the gate, some practical application for us, I would say this. When we and our leaders decide, like the Israelites, to put faith in our own wisdom, to put our faith in our own prowess, in our own capacity, to reject God, but rather submit ourselves to idols or false gods, those things that we worship and serve rather than the one true God, the one true God will, in fact, humble us. And that humbling comes either passively or actively, and I want to make sure we get this differentiation here. Uh, God will either leave us to the consequences of our sin and rebellion. He'll take his hands off us and say, go ahead, go your own way. You're going to suffer the consequences. That is essentially what Paul is saying in the last half of Romans chapter 1, or he will actively discipline us, as he will do with the Israelites when the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, comes a calling in 605 B.C., 
597 BC and then ultimately in 586 BC to kind of clean up everything that he started. And let's make sure we understand this as well. When God takes his hand off of us, when he treats us passively, when he just leaves us to ourselves, in Romans chapter 1, Paul describes it as God turning us over to our own rebellious desires and passions. That's when you and I really should be worried. God actively disciplines his own. If he simply turns you over to yourself, that should be worrisome. You are not his if he just turns you over to yourself. And that's one of the things that the author of Hebrews chapter 12 says in the New Testament. He says, you know, no discipline is pleasant as you're going through it, but that discipline will yield a fruit of righteousness in the end. There's something good coming, and God never disciplines anybody if they aren't his children. If he's not actively disciplining us, we should worry that we are not his. And so there's this sense in which even though the Israelites get sent into exile for 70 years, 700 miles away from their home in Jerusalem, uh, they're in Babylon with people they don't know and, 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 and having to live on the outskirts and having to fend for themselves, there is a sense in which this is actually something that's good for them because God is actively disciplining them. And it's interesting, uh, with the Jews, with his own people, God had tried for centuries to get the Israelites' attention to keep them from having to go through this active discipline, to keep them from having to, to suffer these, 70s, these 70 years. He, he was trying to help them, literally, for hundreds of years, to get them to see, you keep turning away from me. It's going to end badly for you. There's going to be discipline that's coming. He tried for centuries that they needed to put him first. But then finally, after centuries, God's patience with them runs out. Uh, a number of years ago, I was in uh, this group, and we were praying around the circle, as you do, and, and uh, uh, this one person prayed, God, we want to thank you for your infinite patience. And, of course, right there, my mind went somewhere else, and I started thinking, okay, God is long-suffering. He is long, he's the picture of long, he's way more patient than you and I are. He is patient, but his patience is not infinite. There is a limit even to God's patience, and this is an example of that. He finally says it's time, and it's not like he didn't warn them. Like I said, he even warns them in his in his Mosaic law, he warns them a thousand years earlier in Deuteronomy 29. This is what he says. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. So that's a reference to the fact that there probably were some faithful people in Jerusalem in 605, 597, and 586, but they also got swept away because generally the whole people had rebelled against God. Their leadership, the kings, everybody had been rebelling against God, and that is a problem. So God will actively use the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, as his tool of judgment to chastise his people for their lack of faith, their lack of commitment, and for them turning to false gods and idols. So after Nebuchadnezzar comes the first time in 605 BC, the Jews are going to be displaced, like I said, 700 miles to the east of Jerusalem in Babylon. But now, in chapters 40 through 55, what we're looking at is a very quick transition from the prediction of the exile in chapter 39 to already Isaiah delivering a message that God will restore his people after this exile discipline. He's going to restore them. Yes, take comfort. You, you have hope. Even though this is going to be a long time, 70 years, you will be restored. You will be reconciled. I will pay the debt of your sin. And, and in this process of these 16 chapters, he will also grandly and prophetically foreshadow the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus. Everything in these, 
in these chapters build to chapters 52 and 53, those famous verses that point directly, directly, not just foreshadowing, but point directly to the Messiah, Jesus. As I mentioned, 39, chapter 39 ends in the pronouncement of the coming judgment, the Babylonian exile, chapters 40 through 55, tell of the eventual redemption and restoration that will come 70 years after the exile begins. So again, here's something for you and I to consider as we work through these nine weeks. Are there any false gods or idols that the Jews had turned to during these centuries of rebellion? Were any of them stronger or better than the Lord? Any of them stronger or better than Yahweh? The answer, of course, is no. And God is going to prove that through both the exile and the restoration. But then for us, how about our false gods? How about our idols? How about those things that we worship and serve instead of the one true God? Are they any better or stronger than Jesus? No, they are not. Now, as we go through these 16 chapters, there are are generally three voices that we will hear uh, in this poetry. Sometimes it's God who is speaking, and we'll see that in the first person. Sometimes it is Isaiah who is speaking on behalf of God. He's gotten a word from God that he has to share. So sometimes it's Isaiah, the prophet, who is speaking. It's all Isaiah that's writing it down, of course. And then the third voice is that sometimes the people are speaking. That's in the first person plural. So sometimes the people ask questions or they respond to things that God or Isaiah is saying. So as I mentioned, these 16 chapters are all one unit, and as such, there are four things we should remember as we go through these nine weeks. Number one, God is a transcendent and different being than we are. God is a transcendent and different being than we are, and that should help us to see that we should submit to him and that, and that we should understand that he's powerful enough to give us exactly what we need, comfort, hope, Wisdom and restoration. Here's the second thing. The word of God is not just a thing that's stuck in a book. The word of God is is powerful. It's active. It's eternal. It never ends. Our founding pastor, Tom Trader, uh, used to say this all the time. God is timeless, and so a timeless God would never produce dated material. Uh, We hear it all the time that that the Bible is archaic and ancient and outdated. No, it's not. It's fascinating to me the number of people who will try to live a moral life who claim that they don't believe in God, but when they start to list out how they live this moral and ethical life, it's stuff that comes right from the Bible. It's just, it's embedded in in us, whether we realize it or recognize it or not. God's word is active and eternal. The third thing is uh, the Hebrew word that's translated servant is used 21 times in these 16 chapters. This interesting, um, actually there's two ancient Hebrew words that can be translated as to serve or servant. There are also two um, Koine Greek in the New Testament, Koine Greek words that are translated as servant or to serve or to provide servant. All four of those words have at its root, at its root, the idea of worship, the idea of bowing down to a proper authority. In other words, to worship is to serve. Now, there's just a tad bit of snark in here, but I want you to understand what we're trying to get at here. That's why we call it a worship service and not a worship take. You follow that? Okay, we're here to worship God. That's what we're here to do. Uh, Also, although it's not used as often as the word for servant, the word translated as judgment also is used quite a bit in these 16 chapters. And so what we find is that one of the characteristics of the suffering servant, the Messiah, is that he will appear to others to be weak and powerless. He will appear to others to be someone of absolutely no consequences, consequence, and yet he will come and judge because he has the power to do that. He has the authority to do that. It's just another reason the wisdom of the world 
will bring about such staunch and arrogant opposition to God because the servant is gentle and lowly. There's even a book written about Jesus that's titled Gentle and Lowly. But the world sees gentle and lowly as weakness and foolishness, but it's the wisdom and the power of God. And then the last thing, chapters um, 40 through 55 is another version of an Old Testament gospel or good news story. The first one occurs uh, during the Exodus when God brings the people out of Egypt and eventually uh, brings them into the promised land. That is, that is the gospel story of the old, one of the gospel stories of the Old Testament, the good news of the Old Testament, that God does come through eventually. Uh, and this is another gospel story in the Old Testament, the fact that God is coming in their exile to redeem them and restore them and give them life. And the idea of that, uh, behind that gospel good news, is the fact that in rescuing his people, God is descending. He's coming down to help them in their exile. He is condescending, and condescending in a good way. He is coming, lowering himself so that he can help and serve his people and restore them and reform them out of this exile. It's the same thing that Jesus did. Jesus descended. Jesus condescended. He did everything he was called to do and eventually went to the cross. He descended and condescended to the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to, so that you and I could be reconciled to God and have, and have life. So let's dive into uh, Isaiah 40 for a little bit. That's where we'll land this plane eventually. So uh, the first 11 verses is really where I'm going to concentrate in Isaiah 40 for the rest of the morning because the first 11 verses is like the grand introduction to this 16-chapter poem that we'll be looking at in the next nine weeks. And I want (coughs) to, excuse me, I want to preface this by mentioning we're doing 16 weeks of long Old Testament uh, poetry chapters, I'm sorry, 16 chapters of long Old Testament poetry chapters in just nine weeks. So you need to understand the idea of going verse by verse and and getting every little jot and tittle correct on every verse, that's not going to happen. There's going to be a lot of summarizing, and we're going to try to pick the things each week out of these passages that hopefully will scratch you where you itch. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. So the first two verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. That's an amazing way to start this poem. So God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah here, telling him to tell the people that God is on his horse and that redemption is coming once they go into exile. They have that hope to look forward to. And interestingly, in this long poem, the first word is comfort. And it's repeated. Comfort. Comfort. How do we apply that concept uh, today? Well, their comfort came in the promise of restoration and redemption. Honestly, I don't see us uh, worrying too much about that today, even though we desperately need it. It's not something that's at the forefront of our mind. Often we have to be brought very, very low to begin to think about what it would be like to receive comfort of any sort. I mean, seriously, just stop and think, what, what exactly do we need restoration from? We're successful? We're wealthy? We're comfortable? And I'm not talking about just Arcadia. I'm not. You understand that even in the most challenging parts of our nation, the most challenging parts economically, of our nation. They have it better than people 200 years ago had, and people today, just in a continent away, have it. We are way better off today. We are less desperate for this idea of redemption and restoration, and yet that is exactly what we need. We need restoration and redemption, and what we need it from is this fantasy that all of our stuff And all of our worldly wisdom is all we need. You know, in the New Testament, Paul talks about how our worldliness is really foolishness to God because we think God's wisdom is is foolishness. 
But our worldly wisdom that we think we are so sure makes us invulnerable. That's why we need restoration and redemption. Restoration comes in the form of being in in right relationship with God by loving God and loving others and by living a life that puts that first. That's what God says in the Old Testament. He says it very clearly in Leviticus and all through the Old Testament. He says you need to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you need to love others as yourself. And then Jesus repeats that also in Matthew. That's what Jesus says in the New Testament. So comfort for the Christian is that no matter how bad we think things get, and we do, we think things get pretty bad. I think things get pretty bad. But no matter how bad we think things get, we should know that God is in control. God has this. He's sovereign. But I will also say that for the unbeliever, this offers no comfort. Instead, I hear unbelievers ask all the time, well, why isn't God doing anything about it? And then I hear this line all the time. If God is such a loving God, then why doesn't he behave the way I think he should behave? (laughs) Now, that's not what they say, but uh, but whatever follows that is essentially what they're saying. In other words, the unbeliever puts themselves in the position of judge and savior, thinking themselves wise, but acting in foolishness. But God is doing something about it. The problem is is that he's just doing it in, in his own time and in his own way. No matter how far behind you think God is in the score, He's always going to come back and win. That's one of the recurring themes that we'll see in these 16 chapters. No matter how bad you think it is, no matter how far out of the game you think God is, God always comes back to win. Then verses 3 through 5. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every every valley shall be lifted up. By the way, that verse 3 sounds a lot like John the Baptist in, in the Gospel of John. Uh, Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All flesh shall see it together. When God restores the Israelites out of the exile, the whole world is going to take notice, and they're going to realize that something very special has happened. But what this is reminding us of is that the Babylonian conquest and captivity is and was and has been a miserable situation for God's people. It's an uphill, uneven, wilderness experience. Every year, in, I, this used to happen, keywords used to, but every year I used to, in June, I would climb Mount Humphreys. Has, has anybody ever climbed Mount Humphreys? A few of you. Yeah, it's the tallest, it's the tallest peak in... Um, in Arizona, used to for me as keyword, like I said. But I did it for maybe about 18 years in a row. Um, but I will tell you, I had kind of a love-hate relationship with climbing Mount Humphreys. Okay, so you'll, Bud, you'll understand this. So half of the trail is filled with these massive tree roots that you, you literally have to walk the whole way with your head straight down or you'll end up with a broken or sprained ankle. There's just, it's very dangerous. Those tree roots are, are uneven. I hated those roots, you know. And then also at times, you know how steep the climb is, right? It's pretty steep, okay. But there are a few places where it'll even out for 50 or 100 yards and it's even. I love those little respites from the climb. And I, man, I would, I would go slow on those, try to make them last, you know because I knew there was more climbing coming. On all the false summits, you know, there's three false summits. On, on, you think you're getting to the top, and oh, there's another one when you get to the top of that one. Oh, there's another one after that one, too. And then, and then also, I don't know if you know this, but in June and July, Humphreys kind of has its own weather system that's different than anywhere else. And you could be climbing in the middle of, of sunshine and a beautiful day, and you can get to the top, and you can be trapped in a hailstorm or a terrible uh, thunderstorm. And it's like being in a wilderness. You're not sure if you're going to be able to, to get out, you know. Well, God is using these similar metaphors to explain that salvation and restoration are on its way. And so you need to prepare for this. Even though you're in this misery, start preparing for the fact that God is on his horse and that he's coming and he's going to make everything right for you. But please also notice that in verse 5, the glory of the Lord is linked to the spoken word of God. Now, historically, 
We know in the Old Testament the glory of God was found in the cloud and the fire of Exodus, of God following and being with them in the wilderness, but also the glory of the Lord was found in the presence in the temple once Solomon built the temple. Uh, Prophetically and physically, his glory is in the body, life, and work of Jesus, the suffering servant whom these 16 chapters are ultimately about. We're told in John chapter 1 that the word becomes flesh, and that is God's glory as well, Jesus. But also, there is God's glory contained in his word, the Bible, and his word is final. It's contained in the law, the Mosaic law. It's contained in the prophets, and it's contained in the history of God moving in and for his people during the exodus and and when they entered the promised land, and then later on when they are returning from exile. So verses 6 through 8, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The The grass withers, and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. So again, again, you see similarities there to what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And I realize, I understand, I get it. Uh, We don't like to talk about such morbid things, but do you have any idea how fast our bodies decompose after we die? Unless, of course, you die in a freezer, then there's some, some preservation. But when we die, I mean, it's very quick how quickly our bodies Uh, disintegrate. The point is our bodies really are like grass. That's why paying attention to our souls and what are the eternal destination of our souls is so important because that's what truly matters. It's it's something that we talked about these previous two weeks with Josh Swift and, and with James Dufresne talking about the eternal nature of the kingdom of God and how important that is to our souls, and we need to care for our souls. Uh, Again, our founding pastor, Tom, used to say all the time that only three things are eternal, and they are God, his word, and people. But the place where people will spend their eternity, that's the key. Are we going to get these new resurrected bodies and go to the new Jerusalem? Or are we going to get bodies that are built for eternal disintegration and destruction in a place that is completely void of God? That is the question. Take care of our souls. And then verses 9 through 11. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense, his repayment for your sin is before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. You see two pictures of God here. There's great power, but there's also this great tenderness. He comes with might, he comes with power, and he comes with authority because he's God, but he also does it as a gentle shepherd. And that's exactly, again, the picture of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus calms the winds and the waters. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus speaks and people fall down. Jesus speaks and demons flee. And yet, Jesus tenderly and gently loves sinners. He tenderly and gently calls to those who suffer and to those who are grieving. And he humbly teaches and points the way. And again, notice in verse 10, I said it recompenses payment. Both God and Jesus graciously and covenantally pay the debt for us, for our sin, and make things right. They're the ones that pay that for us. That's such good news. It's good news for us. Now, the rest of chapter 40, verses 12 through 31, are a treatise about how nothing can compare to God. Nothing, and I'll read some of those verses in a minute, but we're going to discuss that idea a lot more later because um, God and Isaiah really drill down on it in some of the chapters to come. But just a little uh, preview, 
Nothing can compare to God. And, and, and God makes that clear. He's infinite. He's sovereign. He's creator of all. He's the owner of all. You heard James talk about that last week. He's powerful. He's restorative. He's compassionate. He is comfort and he's hope. He's God. He's the Almighty. And as such, we should practice the discipline of waiting for him and waiting on him. I know it's a discipline because I know we hate to wait. We think our timing is so much better than God's. We're sure of it. We think our ways are much better. But Isaiah will eventually tell us God's ways and his thoughts are much higher than ours. Much better, much more authoritative than ours. And his purpose and him, him, Jesus, the second coming, they're worth the wait. So the reason for this treatise in the rest of chapter 40 is to assure the people of Israel, the ones who are going to be in exile, that he's capable of doing all that he says he's going to do. He is capable of keeping his promise, his covenant to them. So in these verses, you and I are called to take a long look at who God is, to understand who he is, to linger over who God is, and not to just give God a passing glance, but to dwell on him and to dwell with him and to dwell in him. Uh, again, I won't read all the verses, but here's just a taste. 12 through 18, for instance. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountain in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So much of this reminds me of the last couple of chapters in the book of Job, too, when Job says, I have a question for you, and God says, uh, hang on, I have something to tell you first. You know, you, you don't question me, I tell you who I am. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he, God, takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not uh, suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness compare, uh, compare with him? And then verses 25 through 31. To whom will you compare me, God? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out the host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is discarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall fall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, insinuated before the Lord. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. Man, that is, that is such good news. Again, that's who we are in Christ. Those of us who have come to Christ and have given our life to Jesus, that's who we are. That, that's the Old Testament promise lived out in Jesus for us. I think it's interesting, um, and I understand it, and I get it, especially in our world today, but it's interesting how so many of us, we, we walk through life sort of apologetically about our faith. You know, yeah, yeah, okay, you discovered I believe in Jesus. You know, yeah, I got a Bible on my desk or whatever. We're sort of apologetic about it, maybe even at times hiding our faith. We're, we're even maybe a little bit ashamed of it because of the way the world uh, views it. Uh, even at times we, we, we try to fit ourselves into the world at the expense of our souls and, and we're unwilling to celebrate the new life that we have and the victory that God gives us through Jesus. And it's, and it, and it's sad to kind of think of, in that way we kind of think of our faith as an albatross or a big, a big weight 
around our neck that is holding us back and holding us down. It's an impediment. It's an encumberment. But actually, it's what frees us. It's what gives us the freedom to live a whole life in God, to, to live out our purpose, to live out our calling. But I want you to understand also that, that that's something that Jesus also experienced for us. It's not just us who are unsure about that navigation. And it's not that Jesus was unsure, but he has experienced maybe sort of that shame and humiliation and embarrassment that sometimes we feel. The cross, crucifixion for criminals, and Jesus wasn't even a criminal, and yet he was crucified. But that cross, the crucifixion, was the most shameful, humiliating, embarrassing, mock-filled experience that any person could go through, and then they die. It was the worst. And it was designed to bring about shame on the person being crucified. It was designed to humiliate them. It was designed so that people on the ground could walk around and mock the person. He's experienced the shame, the humiliation. He's experienced the suffering that we have experienced. That's Jesus on the cross. But also, at the same time, this is the glory of the cross. As he's hanging on the cross, as he is defeated in the finite game, as he's hanging there, and people are hurling insults at him and chanting and, and claiming their victory over Jesus because he's on the cross, Jesus is up there saying, this is also the power of God, the power of the cross, the power of forgiveness, the power of redemption, the power of restoration, the power of everything that's going to happen to God's people in Babylon, and the power of everything that will happen to you and I who are in Christ, who have given our lives to Christ. The cross represents the power of God through that shame, the joy of God to save his people, to make that payment, to be our recompense. It is absolutely amazing. Jesus on the cross, seemingly lost, losing all control over his situation, was the only one who was in control of the entire universe as he was nailed to that cross. That's a picture of who God is and our salvation that is with us now and the salvation that is to come. That is a beautiful and glorious thing that we have in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you for uh, the narration and the poetic way that you tell the story of your people, that you predict the story of your people, and that you restore your people, that you bring about judgment and reconciliation. God, there's irony in the fact that you would use Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians as your as your tool of judgment and, and discipline for your people, and then you would judge them as well. But again, that is a picture of your sovereignty, your control over everything in this world. And so, God, we submit ourselves to you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done for us through Christ on the cross. God, what a great gift. Let us celebrate that gift. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to sing a couple more songs together. If our communion servers would come forward, we're also going to serve communion at this time. We're going to have people in the wings. Uh, if you're interested in, in, in need prayer, they'll be happy to pray with you during the rest of the service at any time, answer any questions that you might have. Um, again, we, we talk about this every week, and I never want this to become a routine because it's not routine. It's, it's our very lives. What Jesus did for us on the cross, and, and, he, and he lets his friends, the disciples, know that before it happens, the night before it happens. In the midst of that Passover meal, he picks up the bread and he breaks it. He gives thanks and he said, this is my body and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after they had supped on the bread, he picks up the, the cup of wine as, as far as we know, it's the cup of thanksgiving, the third cup, ironically. He says, this is the cup of my blood. It's the new covenant, and it's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. 
when we step out into that aisle and go to the communion stations, we are both confessing our need for a Savior and celebrating that we have a Savior. And so let's come in reverence, but also in celebration as we come to the Lord's table.
Amen, amen. Redemption Arcadia, what an honor and a privilege to worship with you this morning. My name is Zach. 
I'm a, the pastoral resident here. Uh, it is intro Sunday. It's the first Sunday in the month. And what that entails is if you're new here, if this is your first Sunday here at Arcadia or you've been here a couple of times and you'd like to get to know us, get to know some of the folks on staff, get a tour of our campus and just find out uh, more of what we're about here. I would love to meet you in the back at the Connect desk. I'd love to say hi to you, get to know you, um, and take you on that tour. It takes only a couple of minutes, and you'll get to figure out a little bit more of what we do here each Sunday, and that's seek the gospel and seek Jesus. And so as we go, receive this benediction out of the book, I, book of Isaiah. The prophet is writing to the house of Israel, to the house of Jacob, but for us, we would say, oh, members of Arcadia, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. Redemption Arcadia, go live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.